Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, God, thank you that we can praise your name. Father, thank you that we can read and understand you and know you better, that we might praise you more and love you more. And we ask, Father, that you would do that as we look into your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A bit of a serious thing to, to start with. Have you ever dabbled with the occult? The closest I think I've ever come to it is watching a film at university called the, Ex- uh, the Exodus, not the Exodus, the Exorcist uh, at university. I think I just like the theme music, you know, Mike Oldfield, Tube of Bells, you know, it's all good. Uh, but anyway, in the film, a young girl is possessed by a demon who does all sorts of horrible things to her, makes her head spin, makes her spew up all this green stuff and swear at people. It's really not a very nice film, really. I wouldn't recommend it uh, to you. But what it does do really well is sum up what most people think when they think of how the devil works. This is how people think that the devil operates in the world. The devil, if he's believed in at all, is a horror movie villain who tortures people. Either that, or he's a sort of cartoon villain with a sort of pointy stick uh, that goes around prodding people. And people think they're dealing with the devil when there are spooky things going on. So just think about Halloween that comes up at the end of the month. Uh, It's all ghosts and ghouls and vampires. It's all pentagrams and witches. And most people think that's how the devil works. That's what the devil is like. But Revelation is going to paint a very different picture for us of how the devil works. It might not seem it at first as we look into all the sort of strange imagery that's there. But as we look at this passage the same way we've looked at the rest of the book, we'll begin to see that we deal with the devil and his minions nearly every day. We just don't realise it. He has weapons, he has minions that are active in the world today. So we're going to look at these weapons that he uses against us. The first weapon is in verses 1 to 10, and it's political oppression. Political oppression. I won't read it to you again, we just had it read before, but you see here that this is pictured as a beast. It's like a dragon, like the dragon that we had described in the one before. It has ten horns and seven heads. We'll picture that on the screen in a minute when we see what the heads are like. There are slight differences, though, between it and the dragon. The horns come first, and they are the ones that are wearing the crowns rather than the heads. It's the horns. So it's emphasising that the, the rule comes from strength, comes from power. Horns symbolise power, and those two are sort of put together. And it's ruled by force that we're talking about here. The dragon, it, what was emphasised with him was his cunning. But here the rule is by force. And what we see in this beast is really a, a, a mixture uh, of all sorts of different imagery from the Old Testament. We're going to see that in a minute. But this is one of those times when reading ahead helps. Because later on in the book, the beast out of the sea, which we're looking at here, is interpreted in chapter 17. There we're told that the seven heads are seven mountains, and the horns are ten kings or kingdoms. Now I'm not going to do the whole of chapter 17, because we'll come to that when we come to it. Um, But the seven hills may be an allusion to Rome, which is built on seven hills. Could be something to do with that. But then again... Those in the future have a great time with this one. There's quite a lot of places built on seven hills, I've been discovering this week. Washington, D.C. is built on seven hills. Moscow 
is built on seven hills. Brussels is built on seven hills. Tehran, Mecca, Jerusalem is built on seven hills. And then to top it all, Morley in South Leeds, where I went to school. There's Seven Hills Primary School uh, there, just to emphasise that fact. But it's probably Rome that it has in mind, but we'll see that that fits actually as this mixture of images that we're talking about. The rest of each image is a mixture of a leopard. Here we go. It's the dragon giving it its power. Mixture of a leopard, a lion, lion's head, and a bear. Those are its feet. And what it's got here is a mashup, a mixture of the beasts that appear in Daniel's dream in Daniel 7, who also came up from the sea. There, there was a lion, a leopard, and a bear, and a terrifying beast with ten horns. And that's what we have here. We are told in Daniel 7 that there are successive oppressive kingdoms that will arise. They're usually taken to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And they were all to rule before the coming of a final kingdom in the days of the fourth kingdom, which would end them all, the kingdom of God that would bring them to an end. And the beast here has features of all of them. Even has those uh, seven heads and ten horns with the crowns on, sort of blasphemous names on the heads. What we have here is a mixture of all of them. Not so much one kingdom, but all kingdoms. There are links that we can see with Rome and Nero, as I said before. Absolutely, that's the fourth kingdom. We'd expect as much if it really is a mixture of all four. And that would be the one that's most familiar to the readers. That would be the one that they would recognise. But really what we're looking at is empires through the ages. Kingdoms. Now people have identified this beast in their own time, often, and thought it was the end. Been identified as all sorts of different. I'm not even going to list that because it just take a warning. But the reason for that is there is always a beast in our time. All states, kingdoms, and empires have a touch of the beast to them, to a greater or lesser degree. Why do I say that? Well, look at what the beast does. It's given satanic authority. It's given a throne by the beast. Again, the idea of, of ruling. What does it do? It utters haughty and blasphemous words. It exalts itself. It boasts about its power and its might. We're told that it exercises authority over the nations. Again, that theme of nations and kingdoms. This is a beast that holds political power. It makes war on the saints. Nation states and empires are the ones who make war. So here is the state pictured against Christians. Which again, historically and globally, pans out. Christians are not just persecuted by individuals, but by governments. And we're told here that it will conquer them. Christians will have to live in these countries and these states. Places where they do not enjoy the religious freedoms that they are due, and must live under oppression. So it's hard for these Christians living in these countries in these places. And yet, this beast is worshipped by the world. The idea there is that actually it's cheered on. It's not that the world is sad about this situation. Actually, the world doesn't like Christians, and they're cheering on the, the nations as they do this. 
And there's also an inevitable... It's inevitable (laughs) that this is going to happen. So if you look at verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. There's a sense here in which this will happen. Believers will be taken captive. Believers will be killed. Killed by the sword, interestingly, we're told. And in Romans 13, that is the instrument of the state. The state is given the sword to administer justice. But here the state is abusing its God-given authority. Using the sword to persecute the righteous, rather than to punish the wicked. So it sounds a pretty bleak picture, doesn't it, here, this picture of the beast. Now, of course, we must read this in the light of Romans 13, because when we did Romans 13 last year, we read this passage as well. There is a legitimate authority that the state has, and in general, the state can be a force for good. In Romans 13, it's called a servant of God. But it can also be a force for evil, a servant of Satan. And at times... In all times, in all places, there'll be a varying mixture of the two in all sorts of political authority, at all sorts of different levels. Persecuting Christians and making it hard for us to live and to witness. So what are we to do in light of the first feast? We're told there at the end of verse 10, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Are we to take up arms? Are we to fight back? Well, no, here is a call for endurance and faith. We endure and we keep trusting God. We keep going in the face of opposition. Now, that does not mean that we don't uh, claim the rights and protections that were afforded by the state. It doesn't mean that we don't defend ourselves when we're taken to court or mistreated. But we're not called to convert the state here or to subvert the state. Here we're called to endure it. Here we're called to go through what we face. So we do need Christians in politics. We need Christians at all levels of government to speak for us. But we shouldn't expect revival to come through the state. We shouldn't expect that the state will always make wise and godly decisions. Instead, we should endure and keep going whatever the state is doing to Christians. So that's the first of the devil's weapons, political persecution. But he has another minion, he has another weapon against believers. The second one is religious oppression. Let me read to you about the second beast, just the first bit, verse 11 and onwards. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that, it might make the, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The second beast is different. This beast comes out of the earth rather than the sea. And it looks like a lamb. 
It looks all sweet and innocent. It looks like a genuine article, if you like. Right number of horns on its head, not sort of scary horns. It isn't big and scary like the first beast. It's not got any diadems or crowns. It's not a beast that rules here. And it looks a bit like Jesus in Revelation. Jesus is pictured as the lamb. But here's the thing. This lamb speaks like a dragon. That says lies if you can't read it from the back. The words that it speaks out of its mouth are poison and lies. It's a devil in disguise. It's a dragon dressed in sheep's clothing. It's not trying to rule like the first beast. It's trying to deceive. It's false religion. It's masquerading as the real thing, but it's counterfeit. Do you notice that it makes people worship the first beast? It acts sometimes like an arm of the state. Again, think back to the ancient empires where kings of nations were worshipped as gods. It performs signs and wonders, fire from heaven, making things come to life. That was what was happening in chapter 11. Except there, it was two faithful witnesses that were doing these things. Here, though, this demonic sheep repeats the same thing. Did you know that the devil and his minions can perform miracles too? We read it in the Old Testament, when pagan magicians in Pharaoh's court repeated Moses' miracles. We read it in the New Testament as well. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The Apostle Paul wrote, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. So miraculous does not always mean authentic. What we have to do is listen to what is being said. Remember, it looks like a lamb. It looks genuine. But the words are from the dragon, lies. And whereas the first one called for endurance, this one calls for wisdom. Because in many ways, it looks the same. It has the form of real religion, real Christianity. But in reality, it's no such thing. I think too often down the ages, us as Christians have been obsessed with the miraculous and extraordinary at the expense of true and ordinary realities of the Christian life. Imagine, for example, if a church down the road uh, called down fire from heaven in front of everybody in town. Imagine if they made a statue come to life. Do you think people would start going there? I think some people would. I think they'd say, wow, this is amazing. Look what happens down there. Would it matter to those people whether that church preached the truth or whether it preached lies? Probably not. People would still go because what they're there for is the signs and the wonders, the amazing things that are going on. And I guarantee you too that there'd be some Christians there as well, calling it a great uh, work of God. But that is how this second beast works. Counterfeiting true religion and spreading lies. It makes out that it's a force for good, but really it's on the side of evil. And this beast also causes people to be marked. Do you notice that down in verse 16? 
but it also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or its number. This calls for wisdom, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now this part confuses and worries people. I can't count the number of times I've had conversations about this over the years. Christians, I remember years ago, uh, when I was a bit younger, sort of growing up, I remember Christians talking about suspicion about barcodes, um, when they sort of came out and started being used in all sorts of different places. They were sort of worried that they were going to be barcoded. Then it became that they were going to be microchips implanted in our wrists, which we have to use instead of credit cards. But as with most things in Revelation, it has an Old Testament background. We touched on this when we did Exodus last year. You see, the forehead and the hand in the Bible are reserved for the word of God. So Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now Jews to this day literally do this. They go around with boxes that they put on the forehead and uh, boxes that they put on their arms as well with scripture inside. But really here it's supposed to be figurative. I think that's how we're supposed to understand it. The word of God is to be in our minds and in our actions, in our heads and in our hands. (coughs) But do you notice that for these guys who are worshipping the beast, the word of God is absent in those places. And instead, they have the mark of the beast in its place. So again, it's like a parody version of the real thing. It's got a mark, it's got something there, but it's not the genuine article. So really, their minds are set not on the things of God, but on the things of the beast. Their actions characterised by the beast rather than by the things of God. What are the things of the beast? Well, I want to say that the things of the beast are normal human life under the beast, absent of the word of God. Normal human life under the beast, absent of the word of God. Another way of putting it is just sometimes people call it the way of the world. It's just the way that the world thinks. And for me, this is more terrifying than a horror film or a seven-headed lion beast thing. The mark of the beast is a mind set solely on the things of the earth. It's the mind that most human beings have. That's what we're told. The whole earth has the mark of the beast. Jesus puts it really starkly when he rebukes the Apostle Peter in the Gospels. In Matthew 16, 23, Peter has just uh, rebuked Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now you might have expected him to say, get behind me Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of the devil. But he doesn't. He says the things of man. Things of man is just normal human thinking in our world. And this is what Jesus there is saying, that it's demonic. It pleases the devil. When we just think about the world without God. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians. Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. You see, people think that the devil wants to turn everyone into a demon or something. That's how you see it, isn't it, on films. When in reality, he just wants people to carry on living their normal lives, in their normal houses, with their normal jobs, with no reference to God or his word whatsoever. That pleases the devil. Or if they're going to church, a place where there's no reference to the cross or the uniqueness of Christ, just a sort of general religion without Christ's sacrifice or salvation, just salvation by being nice. Because that's the way of the world, isn't it? That's what the world thinks. And the devil's happy for those things to take place. He's happy for those things to take the place of real faith in people's lives. And when they do, that's what the mark of the beast is. And that's why Christians don't have it. They have their minds set on other things, the things of God. That's why we're told in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. We'll come back to this in point 3, but the mark of the beast is normal human thinking, normal human action in our fallen world. And the beast persecutes those who will not go with the way of the world will not agree that we're all basically okay, that no religion is unique, that we're all the same. See if you can go out in public and disagree with that and not get challenged. It's just accepted as true the way it is, the way of the world. It's normal. And that's backed up by what we're told about the number of the beast. That's spooky, right, isn't it, the number? Most of my friends, if they don't know anything about the Bible or Revelation, they know that number. That's not really... More ink's probably been spilled over this than anything else in the whole book. But let me explain this to you the easiest way I know how. Imagine that you wanted to express the cry in chapter 4 of holy, 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 which is done by the, the living creatures there. Imagine in Revelation if you wanted to do it in numbers rather than in words from what we've seen. Holy, holy, holy. Well, in Revelation we've been seeing that seven means holy or complete or perfect. So holy, holy, holy would be 777. Seven, seven. The number of the beast, though, is 666. Six, six. Unholy, unholy, unholy. Imperfect, incomplete, lacking. It falls short of seven. It doesn't match up. We're told what it represents. We're told it's man's number. That's how several translations have it, rather than a man's number, because there's no a. Uh, in the Greek, man's number. Because we, as human beings, fall short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we are imperfect. Because we are unholy, unholy, unholy. So it's not inviting numerology. It's not some strange Da Vinci code clue. It's just telling us that we, humankind and the beast, are unholy and imperfect. Like the lamb that's there, we're in the image of God, yet we're not holy like he is. What marks us out instead is, by our thinking of our, our actions, is the beast, is the way of the world. And it's worth pausing and thinking this morning, were we aware of that? That you and I have fallen short. That far from being victims of the beast, 
Actually, in the first place, we are its allies, marked with the same thinking, marked with the same actions. We must admit our sin and imperfection to God and beg him for mercy through Christ. There is still time. The 42 months, the second half of history, is not over, so we still have time to turn. But what of those who don't have this mark? Well, they have, finally, a, a different mark. A different mark. Those who don't follow the beast have a very different time. Uh, let me just read to you verses 1 to 4 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many thunders, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on its, their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It are these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These who have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Those who don't follow the beast have a very different time. We skimmed over verse 17. But there are those who don't have this mark. But it means for them that they can't buy or sell. That's the first thing that we see in the passage before. What's that about? Well, this is the two beasts working together. In the days that this was written, to be involved in trade, you would often have to pledge loyalty to the god of a trade and join the guild, which would nearly always be pagan. First century Christians wouldn't join in, and so often they were excluded from, their, uh, from those things, sometimes losing their livelihoods because they wouldn't worship idols. We meet this sort of thing through history. Tests being put on people before they could go into office or hold certain positions. And we're beginning to see it again today. Christians losing their jobs or livelihoods because they won't join in with the spirit of the age, the way of the world. I had a quick glimpse through the Christian Institute website this week just to have a, a see what was going on. Ben and Sharon Bogelenzang, uh, who own a hotel in Liverpool, were arrested for a conversation about Islam that they had with a guest. Christian rugby player a while ago, Israel Falou, lost his job after making comments on social media about hell. Lillian Liddell lost her job as a registrar because of her view on civil partnerships. Adrian Smith was demoted at Trafford Housing Trust after a comment he made on social media about gay marriage even though it had nothing to do with his job. Being consistent as a Christian in your job nowadays could cost you your livelihood, as it could in the first century. And it's the beasts working together, because there'll always be a second beast who's prepared to say what you won't. Well, they say that they're Christians over here, and, and they're prepared to say that Jesus isn't the only way to God, so you guys must be the extremists. They're the real guys, you guys are the ones that are fringe. False religion and falsely used authority laugh along heartily together as Christians are sidelined. And that's the beasts at work, whatever level of government, whatever faces are in power. So that's one of the marks of the beast, the different mark in a way for us, is that we suffer and that we're marginalised. But encouragingly, that's not the only mark that we see. Our passage says that we have another mark. 
Not the name or the number of the beast, but the name of the Lamb and the Father on our foreheads. Those who are marked with that in their minds. Now I think we need to clarify what we uh, we mean by that. Uh, we're saying that these guys, sorry, we're saying that these guys are safe, and we need to clarify what we mean by safe. I've been using that language for a few weeks, but it doesn't sound very safe, does it, from what we've just been saying? Actually, these guys are persecuted, so it doesn't mean that believers won't lose their lives. It doesn't mean that believers will, won't lose their livelihoods. It can still be hard. But what it does mean for these who are marked by the Father is that whatever the devil does, he cannot mark us with the beast. He cannot take away our salvation. He cannot steal our eternal life. He cannot turn us back to what we were. Why? Because our foreheads are already occupied. They've already got something on them. We've got the mark of the Father. If I may be flippant here, it's a bit like that advert for George Foreman Grills. Do you remember that one? Where George Foreman stands up and he says, I'm so proud of it, I put my name on it. And it's like God says, I'm so proud that I put my name on them. That's what we're talking about here. God has put his name on us. He has marked us, he has sealed us, to use the language from earlier in the book. We said there that the Holy Spirit is the mark, is the seal of believers. And that really is how God puts his name on us. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are his people. And God's people here, from God's perspective, are pictured, gathered around Mount Zion, as they are in Hebrews. God's people, from God's perspective here, are seen as pure, virgins. They're seen as blameless, never lying. I once asked a Jehovah's Witness who came knocking on the door uh, if they believed the 144,000, they believe they're the only ones who get to heaven. I asked them if they were literally all male Jewish virgins who never lie. Intriguingly, they said no, so I asked them why they thought there were literally 144,000 of them. It's a good question to ask. They didn't have an answer. There you go. But in what it is here is an idealised way of looking at God's people. It's a God's eye view of the church. The first fruits redeemed from humankind. A holy offering to God, pure and blameless. That's how God sees Christians. That's how God sees you. That's how God sees me. Conform to the image of Christ, who just also happened to be a male Jewish virgin who never lied. God sees us in Christ. And that means that we are safe. On our worst day, God sees us in Christ and is pleased. On our best day, God sees us in Christ and guess what? He's pleased. He is our Father, we are his sons. Redeemed sons and daughter of the Father. And here they're singing, singing a new song that no one else can learn. Now it's not because it's one of those with all the complicated bridges and the high bits, Yeah. Not that sort of song that you can't learn. In a new, uh, new song in the Bible comes from a new act of redemption, of rescue, of salvation. The song of Moses comes after the escape through the Red Sea. The song of Deborah and Barak after the rescue of Israel from their enemies. The theme of the new song is picked up in the Psalms. And the psalmists are basically saying, so great is this new thing that God has done. That the old songs aren't enough to express it. We need a new hymn book, is what he's saying. And that's what's happening here. These people have been redeemed 
And the new song is the song of their redemption, their rescue. And that's why only they can learn it. Because only they can sing of this great rescue that God has brought about for them. Rescue from what? Well, in context, from mankind, the realm of the beasts. Actually, they're saying that God could still care for them in the realm of these beasts, that he could rescue them. Not that they don't harm their livelihood or their lives, but they can never take what's most precious to them, the one of whom they sing. They're redeemed for him, for God and the Lamb, for the Father and the Son. And they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and the Spirit causes them to sing out in praise to him. But meanwhile, the mouths of the beast and his followers will continue to skew. Not awful green stuff, by the awful film, but lies and blasphemies. But here the mouths of the followers of Christ flow with spirit-powered praise to God and the Lamb, to the Father and the Son for their glorious grace towards them. So the beasts, they're going to keep on persecuting. But we can keep going. We can keep praising because of our glorious redemption has been brought about through Christ. Let's pray that God would keep us praising through those difficult times. Let's pray. Father God, in this passage it calls for endurance and it calls for wisdom. Father, we pray that you would give us both. Help us, Father, to endure uh, under difficult circumstances, Father, where we sometimes can be scared of what we can and can't say. Father, we pray as well that you'd make us wise, that we might spot where there's counterfeit versions of the gospel going around and know how to help people who are being deceived by the second beast. And Father, keep us singing like those saints that are described here. Father, keep us going through all the difficult times, knowing that we are sealed with your seal, that we are yours and yours alone. And thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.